Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Welcome back to episode six of the wonderful women of officiating as we go full legend mode and bring you D. Cantner, one of the greatest basketball officials of all time on any level. You're going to hear about her amazing accomplishments on the show. And in this episode, we discuss how to avoid bad partnering and not letting your ego get in the way of communication with partners coaches and players. Dee's also going to break down the OIL strategy as an effective way to process situations more clearly. We also discuss several more topics like why coaches are not your friends and why they can't be trusted. Also, how to recover quickly from disappointment and things we should stop saying about coaches off the court. We also discuss the correlation between overselling and incorrect calls. We really hope you find a ton of value in this episode. Thank you so much for joining us on Patreon. It means the world to us. And do us one last favor before you go. Have a great rest of your day. Hi, this is NCAA official D. Cantler. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game. And thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast, the audio experience for basketball officials. And welcome back to episode six of the Wonderful Women of Officiating, a series dedicated to highlighting some of the amazing accomplishments of the females of our officiating community and some of the great work that they're doing both on and off the court. I am here with NCAA great D. Kantner. D, thanks for being here. Hey, Paul, it's my pleasure. And I'm just looking. I, I think I downloaded my screen reverse. So the regional is backwards. But hey, yes, it's going to be all right. Just get a mirror out. The cool thing about this is backwards to us. But on the recording, it's going to look like we are on the same court. And um, the letters will match like a Perfect. puzzle. I love it. I love it. Okay. So just to give the audience a little context about D, she's basically the or one of the ref goats with 32 years of Division One experience and still active. She just worked. Um, she's worked 10 NCAA championship games and has the most. Actually, I've worked more than 10. So what is it? Correction. Fourteen. Um, uh, how, how dare I limit you to that? Fourteen championship games. Yeah. Hopefully, I get this one right. And has the most Final Fours in NCAA history with twenty-four. That is including the most recent um, 2021 Final Four in San Antonio. D, along with Violet Palmer, have the incredible honor of being the first women ever hired into a men's professional league as the NBA hired you ladies to their officiating staff in 1997. I mean, D, remarkable stuff. It's such a privilege to have you on to share some of the insights on how you accomplished so much. Congrats on your Hall of Fame career. Oh, thanks, Paul. It's it's been an amazing ride, and you know I've got so many people who have helped me on that journey and that ride, and uh, I'm just enjoying it as long as I can. So, what are uh, what are some of those accolades when you hear them? Um, how do you process them? How do you filter them? How do you stay humble? 
you know, um, because I know it's, it's really an embodiment of so many people helping me along the way. And just, I mean, it's a blessing. I get to do something I absolutely love to do. And your humility, I mean, my humility is is there because the next time, you know, you, you get full of yourself and trust me and you know it, you make one call and somehow you're humbled immediately. Yeah. So it, this is just a gig that, you know, first of all, you know, I've got amazing passion for and I, I just feel truly honored and blessed to be able to do something I love to do. And it has morphed into a living. It was not, you know, the intent initially. And, um, you know, I... To me, I, I don't even like talking about how many Final Fours, because you're only as good as your last call. And sometimes my last call has been a real beauty. So, you know, to me, that it's, I enjoy, I've enjoyed the ride. I've enjoyed so many tremendous experiences and so many tremendous partners and, and being part of, you know, amazing games. But uh, it's, uh, what's next? What do I have to do tomorrow? You know, that's how I always, I focus forward. Love it. So let's jump right into or right back in time to November 1997, your first NBA regular season game. You had the Hawks and Sixers, uh, Dikembe Mutombo versus Allen Iverson. Take me through your emotions. What do you remember? What was it like working your first game in the big leagues? Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, that was at Philly. That was in Philadelphia. So, you know, people talk yeah, you know, I put that jersey on that night. I looked in the mirror and I went, holy smokes, what are you doing? Um, it really was part of the emotion. And, but I was just, you know, Daryl Garrison had faith in me. I worked hard. You know, we, we went through the process. Violet and I went through the process. And obviously they were confident we were ready. Uh, I don't know if you're ever ready for that moment. But truly one of the most... Uh, Interesting aspects of that game is I'm a Reading, Pennsylvania native, which is about 50 miles from Philadelphia. And I believe we had to order about 20 plus tickets. And most of them, the vast majority of them for were for my teachers going nice. elementary school teachers, high school teachers, middle school teachers, okay. and, and about five family members. So that's what was really interesting about that game. Now, I do, I do remember my nephew did have a sign like, you know, we love the ref. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. you could get harassed for that sign. I'm not sure. But so that was, it was really rather poignant that at least it was a home game for me being a Reading PA native. Absolutely. It must feel so incredible. Your first game, basically working at home and having your family there to support you. How, yeah. it, how did the rest of your rookie season go? Gosh, that was 1997. Uh, you know, everything's a blur, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't focus on how the rest of my, I, I don't remember, quite frankly. I mean, you know, you go through game by game by game. You learn as much as you can. You sit down and go through film with everybody in the league that, you know, that you work with, be it Joey Crawford, be it, uh, you know, Danny Crawford, be it Joe DeRosa. You know, Daryl's leadership was tremendous. So you just tried to go game by game and play by play and learn as much as you can. That's understandable that you might not remember everything. That was probably was just, three, this is 2000, 3,000 games. What? 2021. It was 1997. You know? Listen, I, I like taking trips down memory lane. <laughs> 
So let's start out with your referee story. I like to um, sit back and just listen to you riff for a few minutes about your early beginnings. If you could kind of give us the decanter referee origin story. First of all, Paul, I'm going to correct you. That's Cantner. I am not a wine flask. Decanter will drive me crazy. Correct, Paul. (laughs) My bad. I'll get better. It, it, it is a common mistake. It really is. It's, it's like there is a second end there. It's decantner. Did I say it right uh, the first time or you waited to correct me? This, so the second. That's the first time I heard it. I don't know that you used my last name prior to this because that is, it is actually one of the, uh, it's a pet peeve, but I can show you uh, many credentials even. I remember a national championship. They gave me decanter and I looked at, at Tina Craw and I went, seriously? She said, yeah, I spelled it right. So it is a very common mistake, but it is still a, a, a rather maddening one. So it, there is a second end there. Well, I, I won't call a, you by your last name the rest of the show. I, said, I am not a wine flask. flask. I am not a decanter. Uh, so what was the question? Because as soon as I heard that, I kind of went, oh, fingernails on the chalkboard. Yep. Um, so the question is, I want to hear about your early um, beginnings as a referee, just your ref story. Gosh, I, you know, I don't know that my ref story is any different or, or much different from many people. And I was a senior in college and ironically, many seniors in college find themselves without financial means. Uh, I had no money. A great friend of mine who I call my Pittsburgh mom uh, said, kid, you know, the game, she was a referee, put a whistle in my, in my hand and said, you know, why don't you go referee grade school and church league and whatever? That was in 1982. And, uh, you know, and I really believe from the moment I put that whistle in my mouth, it just felt natural. And I enjoyed it from the get-go. So when Ronnie Garner gave me the whistle and I started out, and that, like I said, grade school, church league in Pittsburgh, refereeing uh, Susie McConnell. And Kathy McConnell, the McConnell, you know, Susie's a, you know, former Olympian, unbelievable player. And now I hate to think that she was only whatever, seven when I started refereeing, you know, whatever the case may be. But uh, so I started a couple of years with um, in Pittsburgh doing high school. You know, I did the grade school, church league, high school, 83, actually did a little bit of D2 in Pittsburgh and D2 and and in college game at that time we were wearing the nice uh blue pants blue and white shirt oh no we're going back before the collars even blue white shirt and white sneakers so I had one year now I don't even know if you remember that uniform you got to send a pic of that because I've never seen I don't know that I have any to be quite honest with you but uh uh again I'm not one that wallows in them in like what happened i'm always like what do i need to do next so it's just i've always been that way i'm not one that goes trips down memory lane it's like what's my next gig where am i going next but so that was 83 and then 84 i actually accepted a position with westinghouse electric corporation as as a sales engineer and i'm prior to that i was working at a, a uh engineering consulting firm in pittsburgh but i interviewed with Westinghouse. They offered me a position in Asheville, North Carolina in 1984. I moved to North Carolina, not knowing a soul. And fortunately, somebody from the Pittsburgh board had called Joe Kafer, who no longer is with us, God rest her soul, 
she was a coordinator for the Southern Conference at that time and the Metro that's no longer existence. Mm-hmm. South Carolina was in the Metro. There were, you know, it's like all the conferences yeah. have changed, mm-hmm. but she was in charge of the Southern Conference and she called me, just had heard, you know, a young woman, you know, I think I was 24 years old then and people can do the math now. So, uh, but she offered me a position on the Southern Conference. I mean, I didn't even realize that was a division one or that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, sure. Well, and she invited me to a clinic to attend a clinic in Atlanta. Like I said, 1984, September of 1984, that I believe that was. And that clinic was being run by June Corteau, who at that time was a national rules editor. So I met June there and we just, you know, developed an immediate friendship. I mean, I think she realized I was a little bit of a smart aleck, you know, having fun at the clinic and whatnot. And, um, she offered to help and gosh, you don't get a better, you know, you don't get a better mentor than that at age 24. I mean, she'd already had, well, the final, first final four was 1982. Marcy Weston worked that one, but June had AI Debbie national experience, you know, final four experience to be and whatnot. And, uh, you know, amazing mentor. And that was my first mentor in 1984. I learned from the top. So again, right place, right time just a paucity of women in officiating in the South offer me a position very serendipitously. So different than what it is today. So different, you know, God bless the people trying now because it was so different then. And I was like, you can run, you can blow the whistle, you, you're athletic. Okay. You're in division one. I'm like, had no idea what I was doing, but again, unbelievable mentorship. And uh, I use that mentor, mentor, Ah, extensively. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. So that was the start in 1984. And my first Final Four was 1992. And June was my alternate in 1992. Wow. But, but, you know, she did the Final Four in whatever, 1985, 1986, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But my first Final Four was 1992, and June was the alternate. So you spent eight years working the working up the division one ladder to crack your first, your first yeah. tournament. Yeah. I mean, I did the Southern in 84, 85, I believe. And again, I, I'm, I know this sounds like I'm making this up, but I don't even remember exactly, but I believe I was hired in the ACC in 1986 and a woman by the name of D Todd was in charge of the officials then. And, you know, I believe she had an associate commissioner job and I, I apologize to Dee if that wasn't her exact title, but um, people thought she was crazy for hiring me at 26. And Dee and I are still friends to this day. And she goes, see, I wasn't crazy. But uh, so I worked the, you know, the ACC in 1986. And then I believe the SEC picked me up in 87, Big 10, you know, and Big East. I, mean, I don't even know. To be honest with you, I, I, it sounds like I should, you know, if quite frankly, if you did not know I was a referee in this house, there might be, I think I have one jersey up in the workout room. Mm-hmm. And in my office, there's paraphernalia because they just give you a bunch of stuff. So it's up there, but I don't have a room dedicated to like the awards or mm-hmm. this game or that game. It's just it's, it's not how I work. It's not how I think. I'm all, like I said, I'm always going like, what's next? What's next? So 
But you know that I mean? in a nutshell is what it, you know, how my officiating career started. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you mentioned one of the aspects of officiating that you're you're passionate about. And the first thing you listed was servicing the game. And you totally stole my heart because that's our tagline. And, and one of the things we're doing here at Crown Refs is inspiring officials to fall in love with the craft. So can you please educate it? Educate us on of your book on on what it means to properly serve the game. Well, you know, Paul, and um, you know, I think as I mentioned before, it, officiating isn't something that I just thought, hey, you know, this is what I want to do when I grow up. First of all, that I'm victim to the Peter Pan syndrome. I won't grow up, but um, it wasn't something I intended to do. And I really believe officiating found me. First of all, it was, I was very comfortable on the floor from the get-go. I enjoyed it. And, and, you know, one of the questions that you did ask and on your little questionnaire is that, like people of influence. And I think back, my high school basketball coach still to this day is one of the most influential people in my life. And I just think, you know, without getting too esoteric or too, you know, ethereal out there, um, I think I was destined to give back to the game because this is a game that gave me so much. That without my high school basketball coach giving me incredible uh leadership and direction and just life lessons i mean she's just so pertinent and still to this day that i feel that because of what basketball has given me i still owe it a whole lot mm -hmm. and my commitment to servicing this game is real and genuine just because i think i still owe it more than i could ever give it so every time i walk on that floor I don't care what game it is. I will not relent. I will, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get every play right. I don't care if the score is, you know, a team down by 40. I will not relax. Do not take a possession off. Mm -hmm. Those types of things, I think, are just intrinsic to servicing the game. And we are, you know, there to service the game. I think a lot of people, because I have a bit of panache on the floor at times, they think, I think it's about me, but I just enjoy being out there. And I enjoy interacting with people. And I, I think sometimes that gets misinterpreted that I'm trying to showboat. I'm not showboating. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying giving back to the game and interacting with those who might do a little bit of a quid pro quo or a little repartee and it's kind of fun, things like that. But to me, servicing the game is the be all end all. And that's one thing that I, you know, I think when I talk to you about the history of officiating, we knew back in 1982 and 1984 when you started officiating and when you were officiating you were doing it because you had a real love and passion for it because you drove five six hours and got 70 dollars a game oh. yeah it didn't pay for the gas half the time and i certainly it, it didn't pay for the sleep or the lack thereof because i had to get back to westinghouse and be at the plant by eight in the morning but if joe kafer called me and said hey can you come you know can you go do a game at virginia tech and I get home at one in the morning and have to be in the office at eight o'clock. I didn't think twice about it or even drove to Maryland. I remember one time from Asheville because that was, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, I get to go to Maryland to work again. I'll do it. And that might have been seventy five dollars. So you always knew people's intent and the impetus for being on that floor was because you just love to do it. We weren't going to get rich. We weren't going to do it for, for a job at that point, you know. 
there are positives to the morphing of that in officiating, and there are also some, I think, negatives to it. I think it's always important and helps remind me um, what my you know objective is is the order of 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 the game. So the game comes first, you know, your partners come second, and you come third, and it's just kind of holding the game on a pedestal. The game is above everybody else. And then you could kind of navigate through some of the other difficulties throughout the game because you have that big picture perspective. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And Paul, and, and, and I truly respect you for saying that. And I, I hope people don't just say that, but they live it. Because I'm not so sure I'm seeing that all the time. I'm really not. And, and it was something that, I mean, obviously through my NBA career and as a WNBA supervisor and, you know, hopefully in my entire career, this is something that I espouse and something I live that that game does come first. And truly, at, and, and really at this point in my career, my goal is to make my partners better. I want my partners to come off that court and say, that was the best game I've ever worked, you know, that they ever enjoyed or worked or whatever. And so, you know, I really believe that is the correct priority. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure we're all living that now, but we all should live that. So kudos to you for continuing to emphasize the servicing of this game. Well, let's let thank you. And let's double click down on that. Um, you know, you said not every official does service it that way, obviously, because ego, insecurity, things like that have a lot to do with it. Sure. How can we you know, for somebody listening that may have a little bit of ego, what can we say to them to kind of get them inject a shot of humility with them or to improve the situation we're speaking about? Well, I think, you know, we probably don't need to something. I think a greater power will eventually do that for us. Now, if you do go out there and and I've been guilty in my past, I, I don't think, you know, obviously at my advanced age, I have hopefully have a little more sage like wisdom than I did at, at 25 and 30 I mean, when you're just starting out and you're really trying to climb and, you know, you start looking like, how did they get that game? How did they, you know, and, you know, comparison is the thief of joy, people. Oh my God. Comparison is the thief of joy. If you're doing that, you are cheating yourself. You're not doing, and you're cheating the game. So stop comparing, but we've all done it. Guilty. I did too. I've done it too. And, you know, you just go, wow, how did they get the game? I'm better than they are. Well, guess what? If you really are better than they, and you really are the creme de la creme, you will get there. You will get there. So, yeah, I try to get to a point of peace where I get frustrated watching what I think are maybe, you know, a misalignment of the prioritizations. But I think, uh, and I also take some solace in the fact that I think it'll even out eventually. I'm working on a, I'm working on a piece called great partnering about to release it. And um, just like you said, we hear so we, so many officials say that, how did they get that game? How did this person get that game? That's, that's Mm -hmm. bad partnering. You're talking negatively about a partner you're probably going to work with. I'm to the point in my life. I I don't want to talk. I want zero negativity about any officials, whether I think it, whether I say it to somebody off the court, I'm trying to eliminate it completely. There's been times where my friends, start to go down that road and I have to check them, you know, Absolutely. because I, I don't want you to play this loser game. This is loser ball, man. Your career has nothing to do with their career. Exactly. And there are tons of games out there, plenty of them to go around. Yeah. You know, and even if you never get yeah, the regional final or the final four, 
think about all the joy you could have you, that you've had just referring the game or enjoying other people or, or whatever the case may be. You know, it's there's so many moments that we cheat ourselves out of when our ego and our insecurities get in the way. And then again, I'd like to say I've never had that happen, but of course I have. Well, it's natural because we all have egos. Every single person has an ego. The question is, how much do you expose it? How much do you let it out? Some people are letting it out all day long. Well, and I think, you know, sometimes that ego also gets in the way of valuable communication on the court, be it with your partners, be it with players, be it with coaches. And your ego gets in the, really, it's, it's going to just be a roadblock to success. We all have to have a good ego. You have to have a good sense of self. You have to have some, you have to have some courage. You have to have some chutzpah to get in the middle of that floor. Absolutely. And wear bad polyester. <laughs> Although we're, I guess we're changing our uniform. Um, it's still going to be polyester. But still, you know, what we said, focus on servicing the game. Number one priority. Just to close, your happiness is not predicated on your postseason assignment. No. No, no, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people and throughout my career, so many people have said to me, you really look like you're having fun out there. And people who have not, I mean, I, there was a guy at, uh, I think it was an Oklahoma State game a couple of years ago. He goes, I have never been to a women's basketball game. I have no idea who you are. You know, if you're supposed to be good or whatever you do, you know, he goes, I don't know a thing about you or about women's basketball. But my friend brought me here tonight. He goes, and what I have noticed is that you actually look like you're having a good time out there. You know, you interact with people, you have a personality, you're having fun, you know, and obviously there are times that that goes away. I mean, I do have the one eyebrow whoop look, you know, it definitely, you know, we are now done. Disrespect is never tolerated and it should not be from anyone, but you can still like enjoy yourself out on that court and have a personality we don't need that's another thing i keep seeing at camps you know young officials coming in and just being so robotic it's like you know we're still people dealing with people and that's the bottom line you know i just think referees in their first couple years i don't know if it's two years four years they have a a generic robotic look and they're just kind of copying I, i look at it as like a poor person's G League look like they're just trying to mimic it's just mimic it's just a lot of mimicking and and maybe listen it takes time it took me time I came in mimicking what I saw so it's it, there's yeah. a natural aspect to it but eventually you have to grow into your own and take you know everything you learn and be your own be your own referee well there are ways I mean, obviously you know we all have to put your fist up to call the foul you know we have mechanics where we obviously have mechanics so we all communicate somewhat similarly using recognized mechanics that is the intent of having mechanics so obviously we all have to do that but you know for years everyone was like call a foul and grab your armpit i'm like what is it about the armpit why are we grabbing the armpit or we call it a holding foul and we grab our elbow i'm like what did they grab their elbow what you know so it's like it got to the point where it's like, whoa, have some individual, you know, just use the technique, use the signal. So, yeah, it, it gets like tr- it's comical at times. Oh, so I just put out a post about over emphatic N1s. 
you know, just <laughs> score it like demonstrative. You look like like a warrior out there. So let's talk about, um, you know, over emphatic signaling. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I'm guilty, too, because I mean, I do. I get into it. I'm, I probably don't always, you know, I think uh, I have a little energy. And, it, and truly, the only time, Paul, I'm allowed to drink caffeine is before a game. Okay. OK, that's the only time. None of my friends let me drink caffeine any other time because I'm somewhat wired to begin with. And then I get caffeine in me and then a big old play comes at you and you, I've been known to hop. I know right. I've been known to hop and call the block and, it, you know, it's like. How many so times crazy. you hit your hips? Six? Yeah, I know. Boom, boom, boom. Well, three <laughs> times, you know. Um, but you don't need to sell every call. Uh, sometimes you get into the moment and we allow, you know, you just get caught up in it. And I get that. But every call, every, you know, you want, you still want a strong signal. Every time out of bounds, blue, you know, call the color, use the color. You know, the, the antithesis of that, I think sometimes I see people who just look so complacent. That's almost, to me, that's more maddening. It's like, you're so cool. And I'm like, gosh, I'm going to go to sleep watching you work. So we need to make sure we use recognize mechanics and hopefully not oversell everything, obviously. Find find the balance, right? Exactly. And you know, and sometimes when you, you oversell too much, it's you know, who are you trying to convince? Well, if you're trying to sell someone, then you're not you haven't convinced yourself. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes, you know, you when you know you make a bad call and you're like, hit him, hit him, hit him, here. No, they didn't. It's it's go. Oh, I mean, I remember Joey Crawford one time, he goes, I didn't even do the mechanic. And I just walked up and went, God, that was awful. You know, <laughs> and I learned from that too. I, I've done the same thing. I adopted that from Joey to say, and I just look at a coach now and go, hated it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's real interesting. I noticed the correlation early in my career um, with overselling and incorrect calls. I just seen them, yeah. you know, appearing together, together, together. And then finally I came to the conclusion, if you're out here overselling, you probably got the call wrong. So I'm very, I'm very anti-sell. Like you always have to present strength and be sharp with your signaling. I think that's a standard, but once you start to overdo it, you start, it's almost like turning the volume up over the max. It's too loud. It's yeah. starting to distort. Yeah. It, it just seems that, you know, again, you're, you are overselling it. You're trying to convince them of something you don't need to. You know, most coaches are going to respect the fact when you just look and go, gosh, that was bad. Sorry. You know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't like it either. So do you like that volume knob comparison? I like the volume knob. I like it. You know, sometimes I have to turn the volume up too with yeah, you know, yeah. dog barking, whatever. Keep it out of like a nine. Keep it out of nine. Yeah. So you mentioned a few iterations ago, you mentioned disrespect. So that led me to think, you know, I want to get into this topic. Officiating is like golf. You know, it can be really hard to stand out and be great at it. And one of the biggest challenges in the industry is the power of the coaches and the verbal, verbal abuse they communicate with and the way they try to bully and influence our decision-making in order to gain a competitive advantage. How have you been able to navigate through this challenge? And what is your advice at dealing with intimidating coaches? Wow. Well, navigating it with a whole lot of questions to my mentors and to other people. I wasn't always good at it. I have a tendency. My natural tendency is to go to sarcasm. Okay. I, you know, I'm, I think I'm funny. So. Sometimes. I think you're funny too. Thank you, Paul. 
sometimes that quick wit doesn't translate well. And so I remember driving home from many games and calling June gone june this is what i said and she'd go oh <laughs> d because june is not a fan of sarcasm you know and she's like you can't say that as i know it obviously didn't work so help me out here so you know asking a lot of questions and just listening and fortunately you know, one of my strengths really is reading people pretty quickly and, you know, I, I did a, I, I have a, I, one of my hobbies is riding motorcycles. I know my supervisors hate to hear that. Don't listen. Okay. And I was reading my hog magazine the other year. I know you probably don't have a subscription. I'll, I'll get you one. So, but there was this really intriguing article called Oil. Observation, Intuition, and Logic. And it was great. It was talking about, you know, when you're riding your bike, you know, you're riding the motorcycle and it starts to rain. Well, you know, here's your observation. Your intuition is, guess what? You better slow down around the turns. You're going to slide out, blah, blah, blah. Logic. So I, I translated that to, I thought it was perfect for officiating too. I mean, I was reading, you know, I was actually reading this article in the Caribbean again. I was on Cayman Islands. You know, I, li- I like to go to the Caribbean postseason. And I was reading this article and I went, this is perfect for camp. And I did a presentation based on that article because I think how to get any coach, not just the overly aggressive ones or the, you know, the high intensity ones is to pay attention to them, to anybody. What's the key to communication? I mean, to your wife, I see you have a wedding ring on. I mean, it's like, what is the key? She that- put a ring on it, D. She did put a ring on it. <laughs> Go ahead, baby. But the thing <laughs> is, you know, what you, you any key, the key, your keystone to a great relationship is communication. So whether you have a really over-the-top coach or a not so over-the-top coach, I still think your most successful officials know how to communicate, know how to diffuse, know how to listen know when to stop and you know and those overly aggressive coaches also will respect when you go to nine and you go to 10 you go okay that's enough now you have a technical foul the people who do not assess technical fouls in the proper time will not garner that respect right i mean they think well i'll be friends you're not going to be friends with coaches trust me never i read coaches reviews for 15 years as a supervisor in the wnba they're not your friends. I'm going to tell you that right now. And that's not anything against coaches. Is you know, it's just the nature of the job. We are in a position that they don't always enjoy us. Okay? It's good. You know, that's fine. We we understand what the role is. But they will respect you when you assess the appropriate technical foul. When you communicate effectively, with them and try to diffuse them appropriately too. So when you know you're going into a game with a coach who has a reputation, whatever that is, for being a little more aggressive, to being a little more intense, to taking the jacket off and throwing it, to do whatever the case may be, double down, listen even harder, figure out 
figure out how do I communicate effectively with this person? And if that doesn't work, then you assess the appropriate technical foul. But through my career, what has served me well is that I will communicate. I don't let my ego get in the way. Again, we're back to that point. Mm -hmm. Now, it's whether it's with high intensity players. I mean, I I think most of us officials are former players or former athletes or whatever, and we're competitive too. Understand the competitive fire. Use some empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, don't forget to be a bit empathic on that floor. It will serve you well. So with a high intensity coach, why are they getting upset? And did you, I mean, I know in a game, I'm working a game and we just kicked the fire out of a call. I'm spinning already and go, I know, I know. We will deal with it. I got it. You know, I'm sorry. What, you know, try to get ahead of it. Anticipate it. And don't defend, you know, an awful call. You lose respect. Right. And if they're just, and some sometimes coaches just, you know, lose their minds. Deal with it effectively. Assess the first technical. If they don't, you know, get out of there, whatever the case may be, as you're walking away and they're running into the middle of the floor, assess the second one. But just assess the technical foul. It always cracks me up how many terms we have for the technical. Oh, I spanked him. I smacked him. I oh, no. You know, it's like. I whacked him. I, I whacked him. And, they, and you wonder why they think, you know, we take joy in it. Well, because we take joy in it. Because I whacked him. I really whacked him last night. Well, come on. You know? They have yeah. a lot of stresses. They have a lot of pressure. They have, you know. And I know we do, too. But we put these stripes on or whatever our uniform is going to look like. You have to understand our role is a little different. And I've had this talk with many people throughout the years. You know, it's like, guess what? We're the officials and our, the expectations of what our job is. is perhaps a little different than what a coach, you know, the coach can say this. We can't say that we get fired. Yeah, you're right. Accept it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> accepted that's part of the job so but you know i enjoy those high intensity coaches i mean they want to win they they're they're fighting for their players figure it out what can you do what's in your toolbox to deal with them and if all those things don't work then assess the appropriate technical thing I love that. D, what does your toolbox sound like with 14 minutes to go in the first half? The coach has already eh, shouted once and then down here. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go back. Okay, so 14 minutes to go, which means it's uh, six minutes into the game. Okay, but we don't have halves. So I, I want to make sure you were talking the right game here. I'm such a men. I'm such a men's I, official. My fault, I was going to say, I, I just want to, you know, Hey, I'm just calling you out, Paul, calling you out. I'm like, wait a minute, 14 minutes. That means that's uh, four minutes left in the first quarter. Okay. I've had some errors on this one, miss K. <laughs> See, I'm tough, Paul. I'm tough. I love it. Listen, I can take okay. it. My, my skin is very thick, but, but let me ask you this. I want to hear what you sound like. D D we just got hit. What, what was that? It's a foul. How are you approaching that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, where am I? As the, are they saying that to me? You're are within they, speaking distance, ten feet away. Distance? You're you have time to address it. 
I, I would just, you know, coach, I hear you. You know, uh, if we miss it, I'm sorry. You know, or whatever the, you know, it depends. It's saying, you know, it's like, okay, I got you. I mean, just acknowledging them, but don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I understand, done. And it's like, if we miss it, you know, we'll try to get it later. So we're not going to be perfect. You know, but, it, you know, if you don't, I don't have a catchphrase. I'd have to understand what was going on in the game. Sure, sure, sure. See, this I adapt, all- adjust, I adapt, adjust, I adapt, adjust, adapt, you know, reading the, you know, that's one of the things, again, observation, intuition, and logic. What is that? What's been going on the first six minutes of the game? Has this coach been like this on every play? Or is this the first time they've said it? Mm-hmm. I'm going to react differently if it's the first time they've said it. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, we probably missed it. I got you. I understand. Now, if they said it every gosh darn play, I'm going to respond a little differently. Yeah. I'm going to respond and go, no, we are done. That's enough. You have a warning. We are not going to talk about a play on every series. Again, you got to give me more background. Mm-hmm. No, I know it's all contextual, and you're it is 100% all contextual. Right. And that's what you I mean. mean. There's, there's, and that's one of the things I think a lot of young refusers want to know. It's like, what do I say when the coach says, "Well, I don't know what's been going on up to that point." Is it the very first play of the game? I mean, I've given a technical foul on the third play of a game because. We started out the game and they went, oh, that's the way it's going to be today. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, please, no. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's not start that way. Next time down the floor. Seriously, that's the way it's going to be today. We're done. Okay. No. It'd be, you know, and I think my partners looked at me like, oh, my gosh. I said, well, it's not going to get any better. Obviously, this is what how they're going to start. So let's just handle this and quell it right from the get-go. But again, if that's the first time that coach said that, I'd go, you know. And if we did miss the call, then I go, absolutely. I'm with you. Now, and if I missed the call, I'm go, yeah, I just missed it. You're right. I mean, I, I will acknowledge it too. How do you approach when coaches question the foul count? D, the fouls are 8 1. I know that's one of those traditional get under your skin and I'm no different. It's uh, it's quite funny because through the years, I think a number of coaches actually do understand that is an official's irritant. And I won't name the coach, but the coach one time said to me, "Gee, I know you hate this. I said, oh my gosh, you're going to tell me the foul count, aren't you? <laughs> and they went, yeah, we are. I said, I'm fully aware of it. I'm fully aware of it. I got you. And, you know, and I just had it this season in in one of the regional games. I, I don't remember which game it was, but first quarter, foul count was five to nothing. And the next quarter, the foul count was five to nothing the other way. And now the coach who had five to nothing in their favor, the first quarter, who said nothing, now says something to me in the second quarter. Gee, the fouls are five to nothing. I said, gosh, I didn't hear from you the first quarter. <laughs> Now, again, I'm not advocating for a first-year official to say that. That could be perceived. That would be the call to June that night going, my sarcasm didn't work. I, being a 35-year official, might get away with it a little bit more. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hear the sarcasm. 
I hear the sarcasm in it. Um, the way you said it, though, I think it's a great line, though. I didn't, oh, it I didn't is. Some... And it was very, and it very effective. But you have to be careful how you say it and to whom you say it and can you say it and all those things. But yeah, that I I do quell that one. When they say the foul counts eight to one, I said, I am fully aware and please do not bring that up because it does question our integrity, our integrity. I will address that one because it does. It's, it's a, it's really an irritating comment. And what about, I know, I know there's a million ways to say this, but what about the words terrible, horrible ref? That was horrible. That's a terrible call. How do you treat that? Well, if it was, I just look at him and go, yeah, it was pretty bad. I will. I mean, if it really was a terrible call, I go, I mean, usually they don't have to tell me. I've already walked over and got, oh my gosh, it's awful. I'm sorry. Um, my skin's not that thin. They say it's a horrible call. I'll go, you know, again, if they're yelling it across the floor, that's different than saying to me one-on-one. Yep, definitely is. Yeah, and it depends who the person is, what kind of relationship I've had with them. If, is it an adversary relationship? Is it one they're just trying to poke the bear? Is it, Again, all these things, Paul, I know I'm not directly answering the question, but all these things come into the moment, the decision at that moment, what to do. And that's why I just want people to get outside themselves and pay attention to everything. Read what's going on on that floor. Read the frustrations. Read how, you know, read all these things and incorporate them and and how to really manage the game effectively. Um I wanted to rehash what you were saying about not using the terminology, you know, I stuck the coach or I whacked the coach. That happened to me the other day. Um, an official reached out to me and told me about a play. I said, oh, I whacked the coach here, sent me the play. And then, of course, he literally whacked the coach. Like, yeah. angry, demonstrative. Mm-hmm. So we, can't, we can't show all that emotion. You can't be angry during these technical fouls. I want to see you more emotionless, right? Exactly. And, you know, again, we invite adversary. We invite an adversarial type of situation when we do, in fact, whack. Mm-hmm. Your game, you know, now that coach is going to see that extra emotion on your part. It feeds into his or her emotions. And now your game starts escalating even more. As opposed to coach, you know. That's a warning. They continue on. You assess the technical. It may not. It may not diffuse the situation, but at least you're not contributing to it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we throw down the gauntlet, and, and then we wonder why our game didn't, you know, wasn't managed well. You know, we dare them with that type of emotion and that type of challenge. When we get into ego battles, nobody, nobody wins. You know, anytime someone can hold a job for 32 straight years, I think they're very worthy um, of giving examples how to build sustainability within your profession. So, D, we ask you, what are your five keys for career longevity? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, Refusing to accept that I'm old. No, that's not it. That wasn't it. Um, Truly... uh, Number one is, is again, focusing on the servicing of the game and, and the passion. I mean, I just, I love what I do. I really do. I I mean, there are some games you're out there going, oh my God, is this thing ever going to end? I'm not saying every time you walk on the floor, it's just sheer joy. Of course it's not. And there are 
situations and moments where you you're you're challenged but overall you know I still really enjoy being out there which is why I have not retired uh people keep saying how much longer are you going to do it I don't know we'll see you better, you better yeah. not retire in that shape you are in <laughs> well yeah thank you for that and that's number two no I don't know if number two is fitness or not but obviously my level of fitness is is pretty strong and it was something I've always been dedicated to, but I was dedicated to it even in Fortune 500. You know, as all my sales, you know, my sales friends were all going out and all, you know, we were all going out with clients and whatnot. I said, yep, I'll be there in an hour or so. And they're like, really, Cantner, you're going to go eat. You're going to go work out. Right. I said, I am. And then I'll come to happy hour. So, but I'm going to do my workout first because it's just something I've done literally for 44 years, nonstop, probably lifting weights, work. I mean, I've, I've been an athlete since the age of seven, competitive athlete. I started running track when I was seven. So it's a whole long time. So fitness is a huge part of, you know, what I enjoy in life. And, you know, I've been thankfully blessed with a pretty good, could uh, genetics to still stay pretty strong at my age and still in shape. And yeah, I can still, still run those fast twitch muscles don't ever paul don't ever ask me to run a marathon no oh, long distance not for me not either. on not on the bucket list or anything that rhymes with that sorry i know this is a children's show um <laughs> for the kids yeah. <laughs> but um yeah i i definitely uh thankful that i still have fast twitch muscle fibers and i can still sprint up and down that court pretty good not taking yourself too seriously mm-hmm. Now, in officiating, if you take yourself seriously, you will be, well, it's going to be a tough road. It's going to be a tough road because there are just so many situations, so many moments that it's going to be difficult to to navigate through if you are, you know, you take yourself that seriously. Um, obviously, rules knowledge. You know, I always tell younger officials, anything you can do to control on your own, take control of it. Your level of fitness, your rules knowledge, your commitment to understanding and reading, you know, that CCA manual that nobody reads, you know, understanding fundamental court positions, understand, you know, the system works. If you know the system, I, I find it remarkable when I'm helping younger officials and I'm breaking down film, I'm like, where is your primary area of responsibility? Because you're not in it. Why are you not in it? Do you not know it? No. So obviously addressing everything you can address of, on your own, because there's so many aspects to officiating that you're not going to be able to address. You know, there are things that you can't control. No. Why did Joey get that game and you didn't? Maybe it isn't because of your skill level, because it was something else. Maybe they're, you know, more ideally located geographically whatever the case may be. So there are so many things you won't be able to control, but do take control of the things you can control. So I've always been committed to reading the rules and knowing what's going on and staying, you know, on top of all of that. Um, you know, this is something that's developed throughout the career, not always good at it in the beginning of the career, but the ability to recover from missed calls no. and making mistakes, forgiving yourself. How quickly can you forgive yourself? You know, how quickly can you move on? Um, 
how quickly can you recover from huge disappointments? How? There were times that I thought I should have moved on earlier in my career and I didn't. And I'm like, oh gosh. I mean, I remember in particular at 1991, I, I really thought I had a chance to move on to the regionals or whatever case may be. And I, you know, I was so busy, Paul, trying to figure out what everybody wanted. I really was like this, this one wants me to look this way. This one wants me to stand this way. This one wants me to speak this way. This one. I took a lot of time that summer. I really did. And I thought I, I did a lot of introspective thinking and going, why am I doing this? If I'm so frustrated by the end of a season and, and I'm not enjoying it. And I really wasn't it. My joy was, was being stolen, but by no one, but myself. But I took some time and I said, why am I, what's going on? And I realized I was driving myself absolutely cuckoo, trying to figure out what everyone else wanted. So that summer, I truly said, listen, I said, Kent, are you, you're, you know, I don't talk about myself in the third person, but <laughs> I said, you know, said, you really are out there. And I know, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm out there trying to do the best job I can every time I walk on that floor. Now, some nights I'm better than others, whether it's biorhythms, whether it's what I ate that day, what, whatever the case may be. And I recognize that some nights I'm better than others, but I'm still, no, purity of heart. I'm trying to do the best job I can, every single possession. So during that, that summer, I said, stop, just stop. Stop trying to figure out what everybody else wants and just go out there and do the best job you can and enjoy the ride. And that was the first time I went to the final four. And I, you know, it was just, it, it sounds so simple, but it was that simple. And then there, there are moments that are going to steal that joy. And there are nights that you're not going to sleep. And there are setbacks in your career. You know, gosh, I've probably had one of the best ones, you know, you know, first woman, you know, one of the first women hired, first woman fired. I have that, you know, that position that no one else has from the NBA, but I could have curled up in a ball. I did for a little bit, but I realized I still loved officiating and the women's game welcomed me back. And I returned to the final four in 2003. So didn't skip a beat that way. You know, I had a lot of sleepless nights, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself and, and can we all, and I think that's part of it is just why I've been successful is just, or whatever success is, but why people say I've been successful. It's because, you know, I just accept the fact that I'm doing this for the right reason. And it really is a purity and intent of heart that I'm out there trying to do that best job. You know, those other things help. Those other things help. That ability to communicate. And truly, you know, it's funny because I'm actually working a little bit with Basketball Australia. And Lauren Jackson, who is part of their organization now, reached out to me. And Lauren didn't talk to me about, you know, what a fabulous play caller I was, why she wants me to help with some of their officials in Australia. She didn't talk to me about, wow, you were an amazing play caller. She didn't say anything about that. She said, we could always talk to you. We could always talk to you. We knew that, you know, you were, you were there trying to do the right thing. And if we were a little fired up, you tried to talk us off the ledge or, you know, and if we said a bad word, you just went, Ooh, you know, whatever, just bring it down. She said, but we could always talk to you. And, you know, 
so the players they'll understand too i mean half the time when i when i miss a call with a player i just look and go god that was awful it was awful i'm sorry and half the time they go it's okay deep you know, it's all right. They end up comforting me. I'm like, well, thanks. You know, it's like sometimes, sometimes they're not so happy and I, I get it, you know, but when they're not happy again, if they come at me hard, I just go, you know, I might've missed that call or I did miss that call, but you are not going to disrespect me. I'm not going to disrespect you. And I assure you, my play calling is better than your shooting percentage. So you need to stop. Because by no means am I advocating for tolerance of disrespect in any manner. That's that's a hot button with me. You know, I get competitive fire. I get heat of the moment reaction. I do not get disrespect on it from anyone. Your play calling percentage is 96%. Their shooting percentage is 38%. <laughs> I hope mine's 96. It depends on the day. But thank you, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know. But, you know, I don't know those five things, if I listed five, but they all kind of, they're all kind of an amalgamation of each other. They all kind of work into each other. But the bottom line is, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the career I've had and the fact that, um, you know, I'm still there and having fun mm. and people still want me there. So that's a good thing. You remind reminded me a little bit there of of Natasha Kamey's answer when I asked that, and she said she finally kind of um, found her happiness and found her career path. I guess once she finally found herself and stopped trying to make everybody else happy, because you can't do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. Doesn't yeah doesn't lead to your happiness or you being the best version of yourself. Well, yeah, go the only person you can really be is yourself. I mean, that's what, you, like you said, you can pattern yourself, get some mechanics from somebody you respect or you admire or whatever, but still, you know, you got to be yourself. The charlatans will, you know, might be successful for a moment. They will not have staying power. See, there's about seven words on this podcast. I'm going to go Google immediately after the show. Uh <laughs> uh, one you. of the things i do paul i do a crossword every day you know and that is one of the things it's funny you say that because angelica suffering who is a delightful official always says to me what's the word for the day because she'll I, I can't help it I, you know i love to read and whatever and that's one thing another reason i think you know i've been successful in officiating it's not the be all end all it's not the only thing i do you know, I, th I sent you pictures in my bee suit. There are three beehives out there. You know, I'm a nerd. I love just, you know, I, I keep, you know, I just love there's so much going on in this world that we, sh you know, we need to be focused on our craft, but it can't consume you. And that was the mistake I made. You know, I let it consume me in my younger self. And when I did get fired by the NBA, it almost, it almost like took me down. Because it became, it really did become who I was, not what I did. You know, and, and, it's, and that's part of the, the mistake that I made. It became who I was. And, and now it is what I do. And I love doing what I do, but it's not who I am. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience. So you were NBA official 1997. You were simultaneously the WNBA coordinator of officials? I was. That was Daryl Garrison's idea. Gotcha. 
it's interesting um just because obviously now all the coordinators are have moved on and retired so you're like a little bit of a player coach back then like bill russell of refs um well, and daryl was daryl was the supervisor of the nba and also refereed in the nba wow. at one time so yeah. Yeah. but just just looking at your your career resume that that it just you know it, it stuck out like wow this doesn't seem like it fits she was fired from the nba you don't have to but do you care to discuss anything from that any value that we can extract from that I mean, I th- again, I think the biggest value is that you're you're going to have setbacks. How do you deal with them? Well, how do you deal with them? Whether you get uh, fired by the NBA or you get fired out of, you know, or you get you don't get renewed contract in the Big East. How are you going to deal with it? Because we're all going to have to deal with something like that in your career. You know, you may not it may not make ESPN like mine did or international newspapers like mine did, but in your world, it does. You know, just because mine got more playtime on ESPN, to you, it's just as important. How are you going to deal with it when the, when the Big East doesn't pick you up the next season? Do you go forward positively? Or do you just, you know, take, that, take a negative attitude towards that and say, it's somebody else's fault. It's un- what else can you do how do you learn from it? You know, it's not an easy thing to go through, but it is something that I think all of us are going to go through it and on, on whatever level it may be. And you've got to make a decision. How are you going to navigate those waters? What are you going to learn? And how do you come out on the other side? And I really believe because of that event in my life, I came out a better person. I learned a lot. I came out a better person and I'm still blessed to be able to referee a game I love. Mm-hmm. So it all worked out okay. You know? And then I was given the opportunity to also supervise the WNBA and learned more that way. I mean, you learn a lot as an administrator. Yeah. You learn a whole lot. You, you learn what coaches really do think of us. You, know? mm-hmm. <laughs> you learn, you know, and, you know, being able to work with a lot of different officials through the years and whatnot, it's just, I just enjoy learning from others, be it a first-year official or a 30-year official. So, but like I said, everyone's going to have those type of events that they're going to have to figure out, how am I going to deal with this? Can I turn, you know, the lemons into lemonade to be cliche-ish? Can you do it? Not easy, but you can. So you're obviously a long-time college official before you entered the pro ranks. How long did it take you to study the game? When did you start reading the rules? Um, you know, 97, you got your start, but when did that whole process sort of begin? Gosh. Or did they just throw you in? Yeah, they just threw us in. That's all. No, I think we started in 95, 94, 95, a couple years. Okay. Yeah, you know, so and spent a whole lot of time in, you know, summer league, you know, stayed in Long Beach for – Ooh, a few months. Westinghouse was really good with me. I mean, that's another thing. I mean, I had a, an employer that still allowed me to do that too. So, sure. you know, I still had to sell motor control going through that process. No, so, so you no, know, we had our training. We we did uh, two to three years of training before they hired us. D, this is the sixth episode of the Wonderful Women of Officiating, where we're trying to support and empower female officials to be great. What would you like to say um, to kind of add to this conversation of inspiring a new generation of women officials? I'm going to do it, please. I mean, I, I want to inspire you to 
if I can. Um, but the inspiration is going to come within. Do you have that fire within you to really come out here and uh, be of value on this basketball court? And don't let the money entice you. That, that's the thing. It's it, The money is great now. And it's a whole lot more than I ever thought would ever happen in my career. But that can't be the impetus for you taking your place on this court. It, um, inspiration has to come from, as Paul has dedicated his podcast to, to servicing the game, to being of value on that court. To, and I hope if you've seen me officiate, if you listen to anything I've said today, that I hope you perceive that it really is my goal every time I walk on the floor and every time up and down that court to service a game and provide value to the game of women's basketball or any basketball game that I've, I've had the privilege of refereeing, you know, be it the Olympics, the NBA, the, and I actually never refereed in the WNBA. I was always supervising, but it's a great job. It is. Don't let the negativity of fans yelling at you or coaches yelling at you. Trust me. There is so much more positive than negative to being a referee. I, I just can't even tell you. It's not even close. So what? A fan that you know nothing about, who knows nothing about you, yells at you. They're an idiot. Who cares? Why? You know, if I took my self-worth from what I've heard through <laughs> how many years? 37 years of officiating, I'd be in a puddle in the corner right now. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. So I know what I'm talking about as far as I know why I'm out there. And I think that purity of heart has been rewarded with an amazing career that I don't think I really have deserved, but I'm grateful for. So I hope that inspires you to come out there and I don't know how many years I'm going to be working, but I hope I work with you. So, and I hope it's the best game you ever work. If you do get an opportunity to work with me, we will have fun. I play music in the locker room after the pregame, you know, and uh, again, don't take ourselves too seriously. And what are we listening to nowadays, D? Oh, I'm an R&B soul jazz person. So, but you know, and I'll bring out the old eighties and nineties disco. That's always a little fun to, to listen to in the, in the game, you know, in the locker room. So. You got, you got spice girl. That's it. <laughs> Although I'm not a spice girl. That would be, uh, what are the spice girls? Jerry Hollowell. I don't even remember. Now you're going back. <laughs> See, Paul, you're going to get me on too many tangents. That's how my brain works. We're going to do trying that. to do. I'm trying to get That's you on it. multiple tangents. Uh, just let you go. Pass you the ball. No, I, Paul, I, I am really proud of what you are doing for the game. I hope I've given some inspiration to somebody that uh, realizes that this just really is an amazing, an amazing environment to be, have an existence in. You know, the blessings that I've been afforded throughout my career are more than I ever could have imagined. And, um, you know, not done yet. Got a few good years in me yet. I hope. You never know. You just never know. But, you know, I live looking forward and I can't wait to see what tomorrow brings. It's very interesting, your career path. And, how, you know, we talked about longevity. But, I mean, from what I see, and, you know, I didn't watch a ton of your games this year, but 
you're still at the top of your game. It's you're on like your path way past Tom Brady at this point. <laughs> How old is Tom? Oh, I guess I am older than Tom Brady. We don't want to talk about that. Yes. I'm definitely older than Tom Brady. Yeah. Um, D I have a few speed round questions. It's a quick one line question. You can give me a few sentence answer and we'll kind of okay. do uh... so brevity is the soul of wit here. Okay. I gotcha. Uh, so first question, most notable college game. Oh, see, no, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at questions. Okay. The most notable or the most, in, God, I can't even, I don't even know that. I mean, I was fortunate. There's a skip button. Skip it. I don't, there's so many, so many. I mean, my first final four in 1992, we called 63 fouls. I thought if this is what it's like to be in the final four, I don't want to be here. But 93 then was the complete antithesis. That's when Cheryl Swoops went off for 47 points. And Sally Bell and I just went, it's up, it's good. It's up, it's good. You know, it was so pleasant. You know, Ohio State and and Texas Tech, one-point game. It was an amazing game. Sally and I just kept them in bounds. Complete opposite of what Artie Bominger and I had to do in 92. So, that game was refreshing because I went, oh, maybe I do want to work the final four because after 92, I wasn't sure I did. Um, you know, uh, a Gumba Wally's shot at that. I mean, that, I was on that game. I'm going up with the count to three from the center and quick. I had to run and get Notre Dame players off the court because we had to go to the monitor. I mean, obviously there are moments like that that you just go, holy smokes, you know, you're right in the thick of it. But there's so many, gosh, you know, I, there just are so many. The, I just remember even the first time having NC State back in the 90s and Andrea Stinson going up for a layup and she did, like, did a 360. And I was like, holy smokes, first time I saw a woman do something like that. Or being able to work with, you know, the Olympic teams through the year. So, yeah, too many, too many. I can't pick one. I can't pick one. Time. You but just got I know, in. I was going to say, I bet, I'm not brief on that one. So go. Right, by the way, I really enjoyed looking at your three-point make signal. Strong, real That's strong. It. Good. It's good. So you look at those. Look at those guns. There they are. Yeah, I saw you on that CBS video. You're ripped. Well, there's, you know, I'm the incredible shrinking woman. I used to have, like, bigger muscles. But as I get older, they just get leaner, but definitely cut, you know. I guess it's better. I'm not complaining. I guess it's better than not being able to see them, right? Yes. Uh, what's been your diet for this week? Oh, well, my diet since 1982 is I'm vegetarian. So, you know, I I go outside and graze. That's about it. So. Who's the best women's player you ever refed? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, best women's player. Again, it depends on the moment. I mean, you know, I, I Cheryl Miller back, you know, early. Yeah, I have refereed Candace Park. I've refereed Lisa Leslie. I've refereed, you know, Lauren Jackson in the Olympics. I've refereed Diana Taurasi. I've, I mean, the Asia Wilson. There's just so many really strong players through the years. So, you know, I guess I should mention Lobo. I mean, otherwise she'll call me out on a broadcast. She's still mad at me for the third foul I called on her in the 1995 national championship game. So she brings that up every time. You think she'd get over it, so. Correct uh, call or incorrect call? Oh, you know, it <laughs> probably wasn't. <laughs> see, that was here for the historian. That was the last two-person crew national championship game. Wow. So the irony, 
I'm going to go back a little history here. I know I'm probably, again, I, I digress. So you, you can't. No worries. You're doing okay, your so 1995, Paul, the entire season, all the top conferences refereed in three person. Okay. Mm-hmm. You get to the NCAA tournament and because not the predominant majority, I think it had to be at least over 70% because over 70% had not gone to three. We went back to two. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. So I remember now, I do remember my first, you know, first round game that year. Ball went out sideline left, and I'm like, okay, it's out of bounds. Who's, oh gosh, it's my line. I probably didn't say gosh, but I'm going to say that for the broadcast. I forgot, you know, so it was really difficult. And then you get to a national championship game, UConn versus Tennessee, and you're in a two person crew after you had worked three all season long. I know our play calling accuracy was not what it could have been on that game in a two-person crew. So, so Lobo's probably mad at me justifiably. So, so you mentioned Lobo. Uh, that brings me to the UConn point. What's the best UConn team of all time? Oh gosh, I'm no. Mm-mm. Are they all just as good oh, as no. each other? <laughs> I am not going down that path. <laughs> it's like I have no idea. <laughs> Let somebody else who. Makes you know makes their money doing that one. Let the right. let the pundits and talking heads decide that one. Well, I don't like listening to them. I wanted to hear okay, a referee's well, perspective. You. So, <laughs> but uh, what are some? Who are some of the most underrated officials in the country right now that you think don't get enough shine? Oh gosh, I, I can't go there either. No I, I just, you know, I don't know. I I don't really know how anybody is rated anyway. You know. Um, I mean, I know who the veterans are, who we've been around a long time, the ones who, who have had, you know, Final Four experience and things like that. But I, again, I don't focus on that. It's just not how I'm wired. And now people may or may not believe that, but it's just not, I don't look around as, I mean, I'm always looking for good talent and trying to spot good talent to help, you know, recommend or mentor or whatever the case may be but you know i i just don't start rating people or in things it's just it's not how i how i how i think it's just not what i do i have a few other questions but i don't think you'll want to answer those so let me get to one i think you probably will who's the funniest (laughs) uh, who's the funniest nba player you've officiated oh goodness gracious Oh, there's some of the guys who were really fun. They really were. And uh, I mean, it was like one time Carl Malone had the ball and I mean, his hands, obviously huge, goes a hand at him and he wouldn't let go of it. And I'm like, seriously, you know, or uh, some of the guys would hide the ball from me when it went out of bounds and, you know, but I know some of the coaches, again, quick wits and I always get along fun. We have a good time. If we can do repartee, I mean, and, and, and players, and I had, and I, I love some players who just, you can spar with a little bit. So. Well, this was really fun, D. Is there anything uh, else that we maybe didn't touch on? Anything you want to um, speak, speak upon? No, I don't think so. Um, we don't want to. I want to get to the evolution too, but I was just kind of wrapping up this, this segment. No, I think we're good. You know, 
Yep, I was looking at what you had. So yeah, so, I think we're all right. good. So then we just this will this will just be about around this conversation of, of the evolution. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to listen and, and kind of learn. Of, you know, you 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 were you know you reffed in the '80s, early '90s. I I've mm-hmm. been a nine-year official, so I'm I'm just looking to kind of educate myself. <laughs> Maybe talk about, uh, you know, some of the rule changes that affect the game, um, some of the styles of play that might have changed. I would love to hear your take on the evolution of officiating. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's almost as though, you know, if, if you had your shoes from, you know, you bought a pair of shoes in 1984, hold on to them because they're going to come back in style in 2024. It's true. The rules of the game somewhat, you know, seem to be somewhat cyclical too in aspects. I mean, we keep trying to figure out how to appropriately call the block charge in the women's game. You know, so discussions keep going on. I mean, I know right now we have the RA and the LDB, but one of the discussions at this year's rules meeting was, do we still want that? Yeah. And I'm like, oh gosh, here we go. Are we going to go back to trying to figure out how to call the block charge without an RA or an LGB? Because in the beginning, it was like we had no guidelines. And then we tried the guideline of the defense had to be out from, had to be out in front of the rim. Well, what did that mean? Did we drop a plumb line and they had to be, what, an inch in front of the plumb line or two? And how do we judge that? as we're running down the court full speed. And then we went back to, they can be anywhere. So then a player goes to the hole, defense is way under the basket, but she lands on her prior to the ball passing through the hoop. We then have to go, nope, it's an offensive foul. The coach goes, are you kidding me? That's not, she's not playing good defense. And I go, I agree, but it's the rule. So I think, We've decided this year, anyway, to stay with the RA LGB, which I'm quite happy about, quite frankly. The rules, I mean, obviously, Ari was in the NBA when the NCAA adopted the monitor. And I specifically remember having a conversation with June going, uh oh, this could get interesting. He said, it depends on how many ills pandora gets or how many positives pandora gets where is this going to go and we haven't seen the end of this i don't know how you know how much are we going to add on to monitor reviews i mean the nba keeps adding more w keeps adding where are we going to go when's it going to stop so that's that's obviously is a huge evolution from where we used to be shoot in the you know in the 80s and the 90s, we didn't even have video. You know, we didn't have video. So, I mean, that's a huge part of the game. And and right and rightfully so. You need to use video. I mean, it's great. It's an unbelievable tool. It is an asset. Use it. We didn't have precision timing. You know, I was in the NBA when Mike Costable came up with that idea. Um so obviously that's an evolution to the game. And some we can always debate sometimes if that's always positive too, because we have some interesting situations revolving around that at times. Um, 
so our game looks a little different now. And I think the biggest impacts have been, you know, the monitor, you know, the morphing or the iterations of the roles. I think there's no huge differences from, you know, early nineties to now traveling, still traveling. We still try to figure out exactly, you know, we, we get the players and we're always playing catch up with the players, no matter what you're talking. Because we didn't know the single foot hop till LeBron James learned how to, you know, showed us that we were like, oh, geez, that was a travel. And now there are women who do the single foot hop. It's hard to do. Yeah. Oh, it is. But Cappy Pondex is sort of doing it really well in the W. Or you did, you know, the, you know, the axis travel. It's like where they just kind of do the heel toe, heel toe that we didn't know what people were doing. All of a sudden they traveled three feet on the floor. So the video has helped us become better officials, but we're still trying to catch up with things that athletes do. How the women's game has progressed is remarkable. I, I, first of all, let's just look at the size and strength of the athletes. Now, in 1992, when you throw the ball up in the Final Four, you'd be lucky if your post player was six feet tall. I don't recall what they were, quite frankly. Somebody can go back and look at that. But you look at it this year, what are your post players? Six five, six six, six seven, six four. You're like, holy smokes! Your point guards are six two. Mm. And you know, you go to an AAU camp, or you know, you go to camp and AAU players, and we've got 15, 16 year olds who are six three and not skinny. Now, so the athletes have changed. The athleticism has changed. The attitudes have changed. <laughs> so. Talk about yeah. what it was like um, for officiating as a whole and for you to be able to have access to watching yourself. Never before, you know, when that, whenever they got the video, you know, you didn't get to watch your game. So that must have been very eye-opening when you did. <laughs> I think we're back to that word, humility. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. It's very humbling. You went, oh my God, I make a duck face when I call a foul. Did I make a duck face? Why do I make a, you know, what, what the heck am I doing? Yeah, just little simple things like that or quirky behaviors, which unfortunately I still have some of them. But um, yeah, I mean, working, yeah, when I had the opportunity with the NBA and looking and having video as you're at camp and, or I'm on the floor and Daryl Garrison is talking to me in my ear. <laughs> I was like, holy smokes, what's he doing? You know, I mean, there was just so much technology and Obviously, you know, Daryl being one of the most brilliant minds in officiating and being able to learn from him was amazing. And having that kind of technology and the technology that officials have now, shame on you if you're not using it. Shame on you if you're not using it, because it was not always that way. I mean, we, were, we just thought we were fantastic all the time. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> we, we had no way to know one way or another, you know, so... There is uh, definitely so many more tools to help us become better. And uh, I, I really welcome and appreciate that, you know, in my career now. And how was the implementation of the monitor? Was that difficult, you know, getting used to more technology being brought in? No, no not at all. But I, I hope that officials use it appropriately. I, I find now that we almost get to a point, you know, I, I've witnessed on too many occasions 
even in the W, that there were officials who used it as a crutch sometimes. You know, have confidence. I mean, you knew what's going on out there. If you see, you know, a foul, I mean, if you see an intentional foul, call the intentional foul on the spot. I mean, if it's that obvious it's an intentional, call the intentional foul. Don't take the, you know, don't take the coward's way out all the time to go, I'll call the foul and go look for an upgrade. What are you going to do if, if the monitor's not working? Or if you saw the play clearly, just referee the play. Because I think there are sometimes we're utilizing that monitor to the detriment of the game. Yeah, you know, we don't need to go to the monitor yet. We don't have the confidence in what we're seeing out there sometimes. And we're using it as a crutch and we're slowing the pace of the game. And so there is a fine line sometimes that we're not bridging well. No. Um, what was I gonna say? Give me one second. Just, just go for it. Just for a moment. Okay. Um, talk to me about the, the freedom of movement uh, rules that kind of changed. I don't know when it happened for you, but, you know, once they started allowing the defender, you know, not keeping your hand on, two hands is off, no arm bars. How did that change the game? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, years ago, the NBA started with the, you know, no touch on the dribbler. Huge, you know, huge impact. Before, you know, you could kind of steer them. And that, yeah. So the freedom of movement was highly impacted. And when our rules positively started focusing on freedom of movement, and we need to, as officials, whether you like calling the hand-checking rule or not, you know, RSBQ is affected. The freedom of movement is affected. We got to a point sometimes prior to really focusing on freedom of movement, we got into the made the strongest team win. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. wasn't about athleticism. It was about brute strength. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, and taking away the beauty of the game. So these rules, whether you like them or not, your role is to enforce them as written. And, you know, if we do that, athletes learn very quickly. They learn very quickly and we get the beauty of the game. We get the freedom of movement. We get, you know, functional give and goes. And it's, it's just really a pretty thing to watch. If not, we got them. You know, I always love when a, when a coach yells out, you know, chuck the cutter. I'm like, where, where are we going to do it? <laughs> you know, let me anticipate that call. I'm like, thank you for that one. And so, yeah, when a player is going from A to B and all of a sudden there's a little check mark in the middle because somebody chucked her, call a foul. You know, so we need to make sure freedom. And, and I think that freedom of movement, rule movement, huge asset to the game. What other notable changes over your career have you seen that where, where it happened, you're like, all right, the game is, is getting better. The players are getting better. What other kind of moments in time stand out? Oh, my gosh. Well, just even, you know, watching, especially in the women's game, watching the athleticism, the athleticism just seeing what they can do with, you know, the, the passing, the shooting, the, you know, the, the rebounding. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you see a player who's five, eight, and all of a sudden she's up at the rim. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like, it's amazing. So, you know, you try not to just become a fan sometimes and go like, Holy smokes. 
but um yeah and it just again i just think you know the future of our game is very strong if we make sure we enforce the rules and also you know enforce the uh attitudes and respect aspect of the game are there any interesting old rules that they've thrown away that may stand out or are there any like signals that they got rid of that oh we used to because i know the bird dog was was big oh yeah the bird dog I, I when i first started fishing we had the bird dog that was always a good one the biggest rule though it was not in our game it was in the international game it used to be when i first started refereeing fiba and you know and i finished in 2000 when i when i did the sydney olympics but when i first started refereeing fiba we did not handle the ball after violations so that was a that was the craziest thing. Wow. You want to talk about move in you know, a pace of game, pace of play. So you call the travel, and you know sometimes we're just like, yeah, we're looking good. Call it well, hell, they got the ball and they're running down the court. You had to stop your signal. You know, you had to stop your signal because they got the ball and went with it. Like you didn't handle the ball; they just they just took it and went. So that was a crazy rule. But it, well, that that circled back this year in uh, oh, did it really states, in a few states because of the pandemic, where officials did not touch the ball. And this is not only at throw-ins; this is at free throws. Oh my god! Player had to hand him the ball. Pretty interesting. Oh my gosh! Stuff. No yeah, jump that, ball. No jump ball to start the game. Side out. Teammate gets it. That was a crazy one. That was a crazy rule. That, I just remember because you know we would just be like, "It's a travel." Oh gosh, I gotta go! I gotta go! It's like. Right. You know, as far as the college game or pro game, I don't know of any. Mm -mm, any rule that really has changed the game quite that much as as really focusing on freedom of movement and the you know ball handling, dribbling type of fouls that we're you know we're asked to call now. You know, to allow that that movement to happen. So. What else can we discuss and add to this conversation of kind of like, you know, the history of officiating, how it progressed and, and improved? Anything else that we, sh we can touch on? Well, I think, you know, if you think the only thing, you know, uh, 1982, the first, I don't know that many people even realize this. The first women's Final Four in 1982 was refereed the national championship. Here's a little tidbit for you the national championship was refereed by dan woldridge and marcy weston now marcy obviously women's official dan woldridge had never refereed a women's game and they assigned them assigned him the women's national championship wow. yeah talk Pretty about good. a slap to the face <laughs> so fortunately okay so that's what i'm saying let this be incentive but keep you know we don't want to go back to that where, you know, but still, and, and FIBA was going through the same type of progress, too, that it was just acceptable that men could referee women's games, but the inverse or converse was not true. I mean, it didn't matter if the men had never worked a women's game. They could work it in the Olympics. Yeah, and the converse was never true. Now, I did... You know, I did referee men's game in the Olympic, but I had been working the NBA. So they figured I might be able to referee men's game. It's just that type of history to, to us, you know, in the women's game is just downright insulting. So we don't want to replicate that anymore. So that's why we need more women officials. 
And I'm not just saying it should be women refereeing women's games. I, I love the fact that there are men who are dedicated to the women's game who want to be part of our game too. But don't come over to our game just because you think you can do it because the men don't want you. <laughs> that's, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. It's like I can't make it in the men's game, but the women's game is so much easier. It may not be true. Yeah. So don't come to us with that attitude. Now, if you're really, obviously, you know, and there are many men who are dedicated to the women's game. Thank you. But I also would love to see a lot of, you know, young women come into our game. Dee, did you have any thoughts after you left the NBA of switching to do men's college? No, I actually was called about it. Okay. They called me. There was a couple of supervisors called me and I just said, I'm done. Thank you. Very yeah. I, I love the women's game. And and I just felt, you know, I, I just wanted to go back to not being challenged every game okay. at that point in my career. So, and I, I tell you, I, my heart is in the women's game and I love servicing it. So I was quite, quite happy to go back to the women's game. And again, thankful to Patty Broderick and, um, you know, all the different coordinators, Becky Marshall at that time, Marie Koch, let me think, you know, all of them who welcomed me back. And I do appreciate that because they didn't have to. I imagine your phone was ringing a lot that offseason, getting recruited back into college, right? And whether or not I answered it, I don't know. I was in a funk. <laughs> no, was, yeah, I don't know. It was it was fun. It was I, I appreciated the fact that I actually was welcomed back. And, you know, that was that was truly, you know, heartwarming. So. Well, Dee, this has been a real pleasure. Um, I'm learning a lot from you. I'm going to learn more as I go back and kind of, you know, edit the episode. It's a real pleasure to have you on. I think you are the greatest, if not one of the top three greatest officials that, you know, have has walked this earth based on this remarkable career you've had. So it's a real wow. privilege to have you on. Thank, thank you so much. My privilege, Paul. And if I can be of help in any way, don't hesitate, okay? I appreciate it. I, will definitely... I hope you don't mind. I didn't listen to your podcast. I didn't mean to insult you by any means. You can't insult me, D. I'm I know, but you know, I just, I have, to, I do. For my own mental health, I have to take a break from it. I just take a break from officiating. You know, I take a, a few months off and I then, you know, I'm going to do Lisa's camp July 1st. And then I'll go back. You know, I was reading camp rules, but I just need to step away. So just circle back to it during next season once you're back in the mode. You're gonna Absolutely. Pop, no, pop once July, August, September, yeah, I'll get back into it. But I enjoy stepping away and just saying enough for now. Because I mean, and, you know, my friends deserve it. My family deserves it. My dog deserves it. It's like, because it becomes, and I have an OCD type of personality, which is why I look like this at 61. Okay, so... I know what I need to Thank do. you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Refresh, Serve the game. To come back strong. How's that? Does that make sense to you? Sounds so much better. And, you know, it, it, it's just, there's such a world out here. And I think as officials, and I made the mistake. I got too sucked into it that it was the be-all, end-all. And I missed so much. And I don't want to miss all that now. So I'll get I'll get OCD about officiating again soon, but not right now. 
Well, best of luck. We we hope you have uh, many more years ahead of you. And oh, I don't know about that. all that. Don't don't put that. A few more. So, but thank you, Paul. Absolutely. And best to you. So, thank you, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs podcast. Serve the game. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You know, if Crown Refs has brought you any value in the past, I would really appreciate if you would consider joining us in our new private community for basketball officials on the Patreon and Discord apps. We have three different tiers of access and content available. We have Crown Refs Pro, Crown Refs Plus, and Crown Refs Mentor. This is uh, next level stuff. If you've been a fan of the content or the podcast for the past few years, or you've been a day one supporter, um, this is the place to be. This is where we have our weekly training sessions on Zoom. This is where we have our live monthly podcast with special guests. This is where we are interacting every day on private channels. So would really appreciate if you could join us in this community. We think you would flourish and definitely accelerate your skills as a basketball official. For more information, you can click the link in this episode description. Have a great day.